Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of our guests from around the planet who've tuned in for this incredible program that that we're doing this evening here at Global Minnesota. Uh, tonight is one of our public programs and we're able to provide these free of charge to the entire planet because of the generosity of our sponsors, our members, and especially all of our individual supporters out there who are part of our community, who have seen the purpose and the vision of Global Minnesota for now 70 years and make these kinds of public affair programs available to everyone on the planet now, thanks to Zoom at no charge. My name is Mark Ritchie, and I have the honor of serving as president of Global Minnesota. We connect Minnesotans to the world and the world to Minnesota, and we'll be doing that tonight with this program about a new amazing book that we wanna urge you to buy and read. But tonight we'll be talking to the two authors, the man who ran Washington, the life and times of James A. Baker III. This evening's program is presented in partnership with the Committee on Foreign Relations, the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, and the World Affairs Council of America. I wanna introduce one of our partners who will be helping us uh, with this evening's program. But first, I wanna remind you that questions for our discussion for our panel and presenters can be sent by way of email, just questions with an S at globalminnesota.org. There's a little description box there at the YouTube uh, to see that. So again, it's questions with an S at globalminnesota.org. Mary Curtin is our uh, partner. We work with her a lot at the Humphrey School, where I'm also a graduate. Uh, but she's the resident, uh, the diplomat in resident, and has been at the Humphrey School um, since, 19, since 2013, following a 25-year career in America's Foreign Service, where she served all over the world as one of our State Department's Foreign Service officers. In that uh, tour of duty for 25 years. She served pretty much on all continents, but she also was a U.S. delegate to the 1995 UN Conference on Women. Our university and our state are very glad to have this native of Minnesota back as diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School. And I wanna welcome you, uh, Mary Curtin, and turn the microphone over to you. Thank you, Mark, for that introduction. And on behalf of Dean Laura Bloomberg, I'd like to welcome all of you to this incredibly timely event about James Baker, the man who ran Washington, which the Humphrey School of Public Affairs is proud to sponsor in partnership with Global Minnesota and the World Affairs Councils of America. Um, one of my deep regrets of this coronavirus season and the restrictions is that we can't host this kind of exciting event in person at our Humphrey School Conference Center. We always uh, really enjoy partnering with Global Minnesota on those events and bringing together our students, our academic community, and the community across the Twin Cities to discuss important global issues. But I'm looking forward to a time when we can do that again. This event is particularly exciting for me because I first encountered James Baker as a very junior Foreign Service officer 
on the Egypt desk when he became Secretary of State, and I was able to see up close his deep engagement in policy and his outreach to foreign service officers like my boss at the time, whom he personally reached out to for her insights into Egypt policy issues. Many years later, when I was political counselor in Warsaw, I welcomed him to Poland when he headed a delegation to the 25th anniversary celebrations of the Solidarity Union. And I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time talking to him about all kinds of policy issues. So it's an honor for me to introduce the authors of this new biography, who I think actually need little introduction, but they are. Peter Baker, who is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times, a political analyst for MSNBC and author of Days of Fire and the Breach. And Susan Glasser, who is a staff writer for the New Yorker and author of its weekly Letter from Trump's Washington, as well as a CNN global affairs analyst. Their first assignment as a married couple was in Moscow, was as Moscow bureau chiefs for the Washington Post after which they wrote the book, Kremlin Rising. Today, they live in Washington, DC with their son. And our moderator for tonight is Bill Clifford, who's the president and CEO of the World Affairs Councils of America in Washington, DC, where he leads WACA's national office and represents its nonpartisan nonprofit network of more than 90 World Affairs Councils across the United States, of which Global Minnesota is, is one. And so without much uh, further ado, I'd like to turn uh, the evening over to our moderator, Bill Clifford, and to welcome Peter Baker and Susan Glasser virtually to Minnesota, uh, where it's also been beautiful uh, weather until today, but um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Mary, for the introduction. And thanks to the Humphrey School and especially to my colleagues, Mark Ritchie, and everyone at the Global Minnesota team, welcome to this program, wherever you are in the country or the world. And hello to you, Peter and Susan. It's great to see you tonight. I'm in Washington, DC myself, and you've been great friends of the World Affairs Council's uh, network over the years uh, for book talks and other programs that you've done around the country and at our WACA National Conference over time. So welcome to you both. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you so much. And thank you to Mary and Mark. We're so thrilled to be here. We wish we were in Minnesota, actually, because we love Minnesota. It's a great state. But uh, if we can't be there in person, this is the next best thing. Well, great. Um, you are the authors of a fantastic and well-timed new book. Uh, James A. Baker III is The Man Who Ran Washington, and actually at a time when Washington ran the world. Um, I wonder, have you spoken with Secretary Baker since the election? Huh. Well, in fact, we, we did, did actually, yeah. yeah. We called him last week because Jared Kushner was going around telling people he wanted a James Baker-like figure to run their recount or election challenge issues. And so we decided we would call the real James Baker to see what he thinks. And he didn't think much of it. I think <laughs> he made the point that the Florida recount, which everybody remembers he was famously involved in with George W. Bush, was very different than this. So it was, it was good to talk to him and hear a little bit about his views of it. He declined, but uh, and he didn't, of course, endorse uh, Trump as a candidate either time. But he did at least vote for him the first time. And do you have a sense whether he... Uh, cast his ballot for President Trump this time? 
You know, I think he did follow through uh, on that. And, you know, his is a story about uh, the Republican Party and, and how far it's come in many ways from the Republican Party that Baker spent so much of his career building up. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people were very surprised when we reported that in our book that, you know, he was essentially thinking of doing this, even though he in so many ways was the untrump, uh, both in terms of substantively, he remains uh, an internationalist, a free trader, uh, uh, a believer that personal integrity matters, also sort of offended at the sort of incompetence and disarray of the, the Trump White House. Uh, but at the same time, this is a much more partisan moment mm. than the politics when Baker uh, was sort of ruling things. Even though there were bitter fights in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, uh, this kind of extreme tribalization and polarization uh, really didn't exist. And Baker thrived in Washington, actually, by being a very different kind of Republican than the Republicans we see today. Um, it's not his personal inclination. That's what makes it hard to square. Uh, he wouldn't uh, be a believer in the burn it down politics that we're seeing. And in fact, that we saw today with Mitch McConnell refusing to uh, accept the legitimacy of election while claiming victory uh, among Republicans in the Senate and the House for the exact same ballots uh, that they refuse to accept at the presidential level. That, that's not Jim Baker's style of politics. And it tells you a lot about our country right now that he would vote for somebody uh, given how he thinks about them. It's an incredible time. And I just want to push a little bit more on this because you have someone like Michael Steele, who was former uh, head of the Republican National Committee, who would say, I'm a conservative. I'm a would-be Republican again, but I'm not a Trumpist. I'm not, that is not conservatism. That is not the GOP that uh, I or we know. Um, so I wonder why Baker retains such a party man um, inclination, especially in light of the fact that the Bushes all came out and some of his other friends uh, in the party said, Jim, you're going to ruin your reputation over this, or they criticized him for it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. We, look, we started this book seven years ago back uh, in the dim recesses of the Obama era. So it wasn't really about him and Baker, him and Trump at first, but over the rise of Trump, we would have these regular conversations with him going back now four or five years. And we watched him struggle with this. We watched him wrestle with this out loud. And he told us he thought Trump was crazy and he thought he was nuts and he, and he didn't think much of him. And yet he kept uh, uh, going back and forth on whether he could support him. But, you know, one point we had lunch with him in D.C. about a year ago. He says, yeah, I think I could vote for Biden. You know, he's, he's the kind of Democrat I could vote for. And then about two months later, he says, well, don't tell people I'm going to vote for Biden because I'm, I can't leave my party, even though my party has left me. That's the way he put it. My party has left me. And so in Baker's mind, I think his compromise was that, which is he's not going to endorse Trump. He doesn't do anything for him. He wouldn't respond to any requests for help. Uh, but in the privacy of the, the voting booth, he still voted for him. And I, I think it tells you something about the nature of Baker's view of power, which is that you have none if you're on the outside of the tent throwing bricks on the inside. So mm -hmm. just instinctively, his nature is not to be a rebel, but to be somebody on the inside trying to steer things, even in a situation where they can't really be steered. Now, it's interesting that he really had no inclination or desire to become a politician for um, much of his early adult life. And in fact, his family lineage, he had uh, uh, patriarchs who, who flatly pushed him away, as you described. I'm wondering if you could share with us how important 
the, the friendship with George H.W. Bush was, and really that friendship, that arc of that friendship covered not only his entry into politics, but as you say, on the other end with George W. Bush, 41's son, at the time of the 2000 election. You know, look, there's no question this was a unique uh, relationship in modern American politics or even arguably uh, in American politics period going all the way back uh, to have a president and ultimately a secretary of state who were that close uh, is really, you know, we argue whether maybe Jefferson and Madison might have, you know, fit that bill or not. Uh, I think the consensus is no in the sense that Madison really wasn't that much of a peer of Jefferson's, uh, you know, more of an acolyte. Uh, whereas Baker and Bush were almost symbiotic. You know, initially when they met each other, uh, you know, in Houston, uh, on the tennis courts of the Houston Country Club, uh, they were doubles partners, fiercely competitive doubles partners, uh, you know, who won not one, but two club championships, as they both would tell you uh, later in life. You know, they, uh, Bush was actually kind of the, the elder brother uh, uh, in, the, in their initial relationship. Baker uh, described him to us at one point as dazzling at that point. We, we forget because of, we know the George, you know, Herbert Walker Bush of later kind of dorky uh, older Bush. But, uh, you know, he was a war hero. He was a pretty dazzling figure. He had been the youngest naval aviator, one of them, uh, in World War II. Baker was a little bit younger, had not been in World War II. He, uh, Bush had broken away from uh, his a very patriarchal family. His father was the uh, senator from Connecticut, Prescott Bush, very regal. He insisted that his own children call him senator at the dinner table, um, at, whereas uh, you know, Baker was still in Houston, which was where he was actually the fourth generation, even though his name is the third, he was the fourth generation of uh, James Addison Bakers and living very much in the shadow. His father, grandfather and great grandfather before him had been, uh, you know, leading lawyers, corporate lawyers in Houston. Uh, they founded, helped to found the firm Baker Botts, which at one time was the largest law firm west of the Mississippi. They had a family rule. Uh, to stay out of politics ever since uh, great-grandfather Baker had been uh, an elected judge briefly in the Confederacy during uh, the Civil War. Uh, that didn't work out so well. And ever forward, they saw politics as a dirty business that they shouldn't be involved with. And so I think, you know, again, it's this amazing story. Baker never would have been in politics if it weren't for Bush, but arguably Bush might never have become president if it weren't for Jim Baker. Baker. It's an incredible story. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to say that it struck me in reading about the entry into Washington when he was in his mid-40s and um, Bush from China, when he had been an ambassador, uh, was trying to help him get jobs. And it, it, it struck me that um, for all his incredible skills and talents, Jim Baker was also quite lucky at a number of moments, yeah, uh, right? I mean, he, especially early on, he had a meteoric rise and his luck included, you know, when he was at Commerce Department, which people may not remember, that Elliot Richardson, who was going to be his boss, did not come from London. And then by happenstance almost, he was on the plane with Gerald Ford, um, you know, campaigning because the delegate Hunter that he would become, Jim Baker would become, had died in a car crash. And more events like that just put him in the place and he took full advantage. But yeah, a lucky I, guy. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And it tells you a lot about how history is dependent, not just on the larger forces that we talk about, and rightly so, but also on sort of accidental, uh, you know, happenstances. And this, in this case, as you say, uh, this is an accidental indispensable man. He, he wasn't really going to head in the direction he was, but for all these sequence of events you just sort of mentioned. And I think that uh, one, that's one of the things that makes the story so compelling, right? This is, guy is not born to be Secretary of State. It happened to him. And he showed through his talent when the opportunities arose that he could rise to the occasion. But the opportunities had to be there as well. And it was partly because, as you say, he happened to be with Ford when Ford's delegate counter is killed in a car accident. Or the whole Watergate generation of Republican operatives had been wiped out. And so there was room for new guys like a, a Jim Baker to come along in. And I think that one of the things that makes the story really interesting. Or even later, in you know the second Reagan administration, when Don Regan approaches him to switch jobs. That's right. And he's not involved in any of the Iran Contra mess or having to deal with it. Um, and as you know, Bush 41's Secretary of State, you know, the whole world is changing around him. So, but he made every everything count. I wonder if you could, I mean, for all the um, positions he held, chief of staff for four years. Secretary of Treasury, uh, Secretary of State, and all the many campaigns that he he ran uh, uh, for the Republicans. Which of those positions do you think he was most effective at? You know, it's interesting. He it speaks to Baker's skills that he is considered to be a gold standard when it comes to being White House Chief of Staff. Uh, Democrats and Republicans would would say that uh, he was probably the best uh, one ever to have had the job. Uh, mm -hmm. But you can look at his tenure as Secretary of State and say that arguably it was the most consequential since the immediate aftermath uh, of uh, the World War II period. And I am saying that knowing that we can have a conversation about Kissinger. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, certainly it was no small potatoes. And then the fact that he ran five presidential campaigns suggests obviously that he was pretty good at being a national campaign manager. My own take is that probably White House Chief of Staff uh, was where he did the job in a way that, that far uh, 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 outshined anyone who had had it before or since. Uh, but of course, the, what he'd like to be remembered most for uh, was for having been Secretary of State when the Cold War ended. Of course. Peter, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think I think you could make the case that he was uh, perhaps the most consequential Secretary of State as well, because even though in the post Cold War in the post World War II era, and I think that that's not just because he was uh, great uh, chief of staff, but also uh, I think he actually signed Kissinger in some ways. Kissinger opened up to China; that was a big deal. But uh, Baker managed the world when the world has changed. Right, fall of the Berlin Wall, which was 31 years ago today. Uh, the reunification of Germany that followed, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, it didn't have to happen peacefully. It didn't have to happen in a in a in a way that it did, in a, that it worked so well for the West. And I think that Baker's skill—he didn't make these things happen necessarily—but his skill in managing them uh, makes him, you know, uh, uh, stand out in the in, in the annals of history. So I'm going to differ, and it's the right. one position that neither of you mentioned. And I think actually, of course, he was a great Secretary of State, but I think his real advantage, I mean, among, again, all the things that he brought to it, he had that tight relationship with George Bush. And it's sort of, 
leaves Bush out of the picture out of all those events, but Bush and also an incredible team that we haven't seen yes. since, which is Cheney at defense, uh, Colin Powell, and, and uh, 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 of course, Brent Scowcroft at the NSC. So that team uh, was also amazing. Totally. But I'd say Secretary of Treasury, he got a generational tax reform done. He did the Plaza and Louvre records on the, 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 the international currency, which never had finance ministers come together to coordinate like that. He got um, the Canada free trade agreement done at a severe deadline. And perhaps most consequentially for the country, he installed Alan Greenspan. He engineered it. He engineered Reagan's installation of Greenspan. And that pick really governed our economy for 20 years. Yeah. No, I, I think you've got a good point there. <laughs> What's amazing about that, by the way, is that Baker was truly, as you, as you mentioned, an accidental uh, Secretary of the Treasury. Had he not gone over to Don Regan's office and had lunch with Don Regan at that exact moment, uh, and Regan was actually mad at him because of a leak from the White House, right. uh, you know, and actually the lunch was not to discuss swapping jobs. The lunch was uh, to, you know, complain to Baker about uh, his stewardship of the White House. And so, you know, not only was that just sort of a random moment that exactly happened right after, uh, you know, the 1984 election, and they were both casting about for something new to do. But, you know, Jim Baker in, on paper was one of the least prepared Treasury Secretaries ever. Uh, you know, he had an economics course as an undergraduate at Princeton and, and probably didn't do all too well in it. Well. And, and that's, that's about it. Uh, he was not, had no finance background, had no international economic uh, experience. And uh, it's, it's kind of an amazing story. What he brought, of course, was understanding of Congress uh, at that moment in time, probably better than anyone else in the Reagan administration and an ability, you know, his, his natural negotiating uh, skills that had been honed uh, in the previous four years of internecine warfare in the Reagan White House. He really had more trouble with Republicans around that tax uh, debate than he did with Democrats like Dan Rostenkowski. Um, that bipartisanship is, that ship is long gone from Washington today. Um, and, and I wonder if you think that there's a prospect uh, with Joe Biden to bring some of that back. Well, I would say, I would say Joe Biden is a, would like to be a baker like Democrat, right? And there was, he would like to be a deal maker. I think it's his nature, his instinct. He is uh, of the same, more or less generations, younger, obviously, but from the same uh, time period in some ways, Baker and, and Biden worked together back in the day. Uh, and I think that, you know, Biden's history is to work with Mitch McConnell and other Republicans. I don't know that the opportunities are going to be available to him in the same way that they were to Baker at that moment, right? Baker could sit down with Dan Rosenkowski and Dan Rosenkowski could go on national television and say, hey, we're willing to work with Ronald Reagan and Jim Baker to redo the tax code. And it's hard to see Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell saying, hey, we'd like to work with Joe Biden to re redo something. Well, since they won't even accept his election. You're I not. think it's fair to say that when you won't even accept someone's election, it's very hard to envision bipartisan deals coming out of these folks. Maybe they'll accept it after Georgia's uh, Senate runoffs. But really, I almost think, you know, if Jim Baker were, you know, running Washington um, today, he'd come in and, and 
Biden's got the right approach. I mean, he announced a task force today of 13 scientists and medical uh, experts to take on COVID. And really that is the business right now. That is today's tax reform. Uh, it's gotta be all in and- um, Well, it's hard to imagine that this COVID relief bill, which has been sitting out there since April, not passed. It's hard to imagine Jim Baker not finding a deal there. In fact, this is the easiest thing in the world to do. Government officials and politicians like to give away money. That's the easiest thing they do. And they haven't been able to come up with a deal simply to do that. Baker would never have allowed that to happen. Well, what's interesting, though, is that it suggests the structural shifts are not just with an executive branch uh, that's not competent or that's not willing to make a deal. But in the, the, the COVID thing, in fact, suggests how hard it will be for Biden. Because in the end, ultimately, it actually was McConnell and the Senate Republicans who refused to go along uh, with the deal. And, you know, you had the Treasury Secretary feckless, Steve Mnuchin, not really empowered by Trump on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, it might have been easier to get Trump to do that uh, deal uh, if he thought it might, certainly if he thought it might boost his reelection. Uh, mm -hmm. But he was facing Senate Republicans who were even more intransigent. So I think that does not bode well. Now, again, I, I generally agree with Peter that Baker has, uh, uh, you know, was willing to go after the hard deal uh, in ways that actually made it happen. Uh, and certainly you look at, we're talking today is the incredible anniversary of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, unification was, uh, uh, seems a lot more inevitable in hindsight than it did at the time. Uh, and so I don't rule out that, you know, having an exceptional character here could, could lead us uh, to better and different results than the ones we're getting right now. But I, the structural shifts are so profound, unfortunately, in Washington today. That's a very good point about what you just said, Susan, about solving these problems in real time with things that will come into their inbox from everywhere as well. You just cannot really hold that flow down amid all the bureaucratic infighting within the West Wing and between Congress and the agencies. One thing that impressed me, um, uh, in, in I, I didn't realize the arc of this issue. I actually was a Hill, Young Hill staffer in the mid eighties and sort of, I guess my impression and not on that side, but I guess the impression was, wow, uh, they are incredibly disciplined. Um, actually, there was a lot of infighting in the White House, but their messaging was disciplined. And to take one example where it's clear from your book that Baker was fighting for some time. He was really um, vexed by the conservatives, uh, the purest ideological wing of the Reaganites that didn't trust him. And he always thought they were gonna mess up uh, the, the, the Contras issue in, in Nicaragua. And that was while he was chief of staff. And then when he becomes secretary of state, it's the first issue he wants to get done. He sort of very methodically looks at things, I think, and says, this may be hard, but this is a building block. We're going to do it. He saw bipartisan opportunity in Congress, you know, right after Bush was elected. And they took the Contras, he didn't call them freedom fighters. They took it off the table. And that positioned him with an early win to build on these other things that were coming at him with the Soviet Union, uh, the Gulf War, and so forth. 
Yeah, Bill, I think it's exactly right. He saw early on that if he was going to get anything accomplished on the big stuff, he had to make the distraction go away. And the distraction at that point was Central America because they were never going to win there. They were never going to like succeed in the way that they had hoped to. He always saw that as a misadventure. Uh, Michael Deaver tells a story about the first days of the Reagan White House and Baker sits down with him. And he says, they're sitting so close, their knees were almost touching. And Baker says to him, your job and my job is to keep these crazies over there from getting us into a war in Central America. So he was always very wary of that. And you're right. So a month after the 1988 election, where he's just eviscerated Michael Dukakis, not a softy by any stretch, uh, Baker is in the apartment of Bob Strauss, the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, having dinner with Jim Wright, the Speaker of the House, Democrat, to say, how can we make this Contra War thing go away? And he worked with Jim Wright and, and, and Chris Dodd and, and Jimmy Carter to basically right. find a way to get it out of the, out, off the table. And it works. And therefore, he can focus on Germany and he focus on Soviet Union and the Middle East when that comes up, because he does want to focus on issues that are hard but doable, not impossible and not too easy that he can leave to other people. That's really uh, a great point, too, that um, I'd forgotten that he had reached out to Jimmy Carter when nobody in the Reagan or Bush uh, teams were thinking of doing that and knew that Carter had these contacts. He, and he could told us that I may be the only Republican who likes Jimmy Carter, but he did. He liked Jimmy Carter. <laughs> um, let's talk about some personalities. Um, the women. Um, one of the keys was clearly Nancy Reagan, whom, uh, who, who said, you know, her worst decision was to sort of tell Ronnie that um, Baker for Don Regan's job swap was a good idea. Um, but he really, um, especially in contrast to what Don Regan, how Don Regan handled Nancy Reagan, that was critical to Baker's success. It, look, uh, Jim Baker was a brilliant at mapping out uh, power and understanding it in all of the institutions, uh, you know, that he entered in his life. And he quickly understood that Nancy Reagan was the crucial uh, factor in the Reagan White House. And, uh, you know, he's no dummy. Uh, you know, there's no way that he was going to be alienating uh, Nancy Reagan. And in fact, uh, there was this famous Troika uh, that uh, was essentially running things in, in the beginning of Reagan's presidency. And uh, Baker understood, like, if there's going to be a threesome here, you know, it, I'm going to be on the side of the two and not on the side of the one. And the other person who was on the side of the two was Michael Deaver, who was very close uh, to the Reagans personally, to Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan uh, liked Baker from the beginning. He, she was always a little wary of him. Of course, she was very focused on loyalty. And Baker mm -hmm. was an outsider to the Reagan inner circle, right? He came from Bush world. He had run not one, but two national campaigns against Ronald Reagan. But at the same time, I think she she instinctively, he, he fit her definition of what the role required. He was very attentive and courteous to her. Uh, uh, you know, he, he understood that part of his job was to serve her as well as Reagan. And so, for example, he knew about uh, Nancy Reagan's White House astrologer. Uh, and I just love this story. Margaret Tutwiler is one of close, uh, Baker's closest advisors. And she is horrified when she hears about this for the first time. Uh, and she goes to Baker and she says, you knew about this? You knew about this? And he just throws up his hands and he says, you know, go talk to so-and-so about it. He knew about it. He didn't want to, you know, cross Nancy Reagan, even if uh, it seemed absurd to him. I mean, that guided, that guided things like one 
presidential debates would happen on a certain day. That's exactly right. It was it was some, you know, super, you know, maybe not like Trump era level crazy stuff, but, but pretty crazy <laughs> stuff. Uh, and it says a lot, by the way, that, you know, when Nancy Reagan passed away a few years ago, uh, you know, she wanted Jim Baker to deliver the eulogy at her funeral. Indeed. Uh, another woman who also um, was close, but there were moments when she uh, felt that uh, Jim was thinking more about Jim than her husband was Barbara Bush. What do you yeah, think about that relationship? Yeah, absolutely. That's that. Look, Barbara Bush loved Jim Baker. He was her husband's best friend. But there were these moments of friction. And one of them came, for instance, the 1992 campaign. Baker was Secretary of State. He didn't want to go back to the White House to help salvage this flagging re-election campaign that Bush was running. But he gets pushed into it, in effect. And he does. And he's not especially excited about it. And some people thought he wasn't really giving it his all. He made the campaign better, but they thought he wasn't fully uh, engaged as he should have been. In fact, and one of the people who thought that was Barbara Bush. She called him the invisible man. Why aren't you out there defending? Why aren't you out there doing more for my husband? Now, you know, he sat down with her and George at one point, and George says to Barbara, now knock it off, Jimmy did what he could. But it was this moment of real friction there. And it took a few years, I think, for that to kind of fade. But even uh, even in late life, in the, a couple of years ago, she was giving an interview to one of our journalistic colleagues, Susan Page, who wrote a biography of her. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about the 1980 campaign when Baker pushes Bush to get out so he can preserve his viability as possibly getting Reagan's uh, vice presidential nod. Mm -hmm. And Susan Page says to Barbara Bush, well, I think that he wanted to you know, make sure that to preserve your husband's ability to be vice president. And, she, and, and Barbara Bush kind of tartly says, he wanted to be chief of staff. So she even then was seeing him as sort of looking out for himself rather than for Bush. So that was always there under the surface. Right. Um, I know that the folks at Global Minnesota are all interested in foreign policy and that kind of thing. And we will get there. I want to remind them that, or anybody in the audience, that if you want to ask questions of Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, the authors of the man who ran Washington, uh, you can write them in the chat box or you write them to questions with an S at globalminnesota.org. The last, uh, not necessarily the last, but a, a third woman I would like to talk about because when you think about Jim Baker, you think about the public persona, you think about his accomplishments, his resume and what he, what he did remarkably over this period of the 70s to the 90s. He was married twice, and one of the most poignant um, uh, parts of your book uh, was the tragedy of his first wife, Mary Stuart McHenry, uh, who, who died of breast cancer, and which kind of allowed uh, the transition in Jim Baker's life uh, professionally in some ways, but that was just a, an amazing uh, segment of your, of your, of your book, uh, and, and his second wife, Susan, um, he, he had, um, we'll talk about him as a husband and as a father and some of the things that he went through and that they went through. You know, it really, Peter and I did not know much about, you know, the personal life of Jim Baker when we embarked on this project. And there's no question uh, that that part of the story, uh, not only his own family's 
you know, history, I mentioned a bit of it uh, in Houston, they really were almost like, you know, founders of the city in many ways and many of its key institutions. But it was a, it was a life of great privilege, but also a, a constrained life of, of obligation and duty, uh, a very narrow world in some ways. Uh, Baker uh, was much more under the sway of his father, who was a very micromanaging sort, uh, well into adulthood. He married uh, Mary Stewart, his, his college love affair that he met on the beach uh, on spring break uh, when he was uh, in college. And, you know, they married young, as people did at that time. They had four young sons. I think it was a very traditional life that Baker was living in every possible way. Uh, his wife was clearly very smart, uh, but, you know, was devoted to having these four sons. Baker was a workaholic, uh, like his father. Uh, and was often, you know, worked every weekend as well as during the week. Um, I don't think he was maybe quite as strict with his boys, but he, he definitely was just a very, a traditional character. You know, he, he went hunting on the weekends. Barbara Bush used to joke that he, uh, you know, was not voting uh, because uh, election day was the same time as the opening of hunting season. Uh, he claims that's not true, but at any rate, he was just absolutely a traditional guy. And then this tragedy strikes and his wife, uh, is diagnosed still in her 30s uh, uh, with cancer. And, you know, we found this, this letter that's published in the book, uh, and it's to his best friend, George Herbert Walker Bush. And he says, uh, Mary Stewart is not going to get better from her cancer. You know, I, the doctors told me that she, this is a fatal diagnosis. I have not told her. I have not told anyone. I have not told my mother. I have not told our sons. A terrible mistake, of course, I should say, as an aside. And, you know, actually, Barbara Bush uh, later said to, to Peter when he interviewed her for this book that, you know, Jimmy knew it was a mistake and, and he shouldn't have done that. But he confesses this to Bush. Uh, you know, that's obviously answers one question we had going into the book. What was how close were they really? The answer is they were that close. You know, sharing a secret like that, that is was not foundational to the friendship. exactly. That's not some country club have a few drinks on Saturday. You know, after playing a tennis match kind of friendship. This is something profound, and it also is relevant that it was in the context even then of politics. Baker was already growing dissatisfied and restless with his corporate law practice in Houston. It wasn't how he wanted to spend his life. Uh, he wasn't yet ready to break away. Bush at this time was considered, was planning to run for Senate. And he thought that his friend Jim Baker would be a great uh, successor to him in the US House of Representatives. Baker was actually flirting with this and was quite interested. And so the letter was to tell uh, George, you know, there's no way I can't do this. And to me, that tells you an awful lot, uh, obviously, about uh, the very stultified uh, gender roles at the time. Uh, you know, in hindsight, like that can seem crazy to us, uh, but also about the nature of this very close human bond that he had with George Bush. And, um, and when he married again, it was actually Mary Stewart's close friend, uh, Susan, and um, I'm, I, I'm blanking on her other names, but um, she was remarkable in a way that just withstanding his life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they had between them seven children and then their first child came along as well. So eight in all, she was managing eight kids and I just can't imagine that happening today. Um, <laughs> You guys have one child, by the way. And speaking of 
can't imagine uh, what, what you're both working for premier uh, media organizations. You also serve television at night and you have a child and you're writing a 600 something page book. So how do you do it? And how do you divide the labor of, of never mind, we'll get to your son, Theo, who you dedicate the book to, but you were both in Moscow together. Did you both write? The same chapter on uh, Baker and Shepard Nadze, or how did you work this book out over these seven years in your family? Yeah, it's a great question. We could use a Susan Baker of our own, actually. Yeah, she really kid. was amazing. She yeah. had four children in middle school at the same time, yeah. uh, all in different schools. When she discovered that Baker, her husband, was about to be chief of staff at the Reagan Victory Party on the night of the election in 1980, she burst out into tears. <laughs> But, uh, and Reagan, she, Reagan tried to reassure her. Reagan says, don't worry, I'm going to get him home by five o'clock every day. And she said, sure you are, Mr. President. And every time he would see her in the next couple of years, he would ask her, you know, Susan, is your husband getting home by five o'clock? Well, no, sir, Mr. President, he's not. <laughs> but she eventually gave him a dispensation. We got along, you know, we, we did this because the truth is, um, we met in a newsroom. This is how we started our relationship. We, she was uh, an editor at the Washington Post. I was a reporter at the Washington Post. We worked together on on the Clinton impeachment. That was the bit, first big story we did together in that sense. And then we went to Moscow, uh, as was mentioned earlier, as reporters and wrote a book together. So we have been for 20 years now, professional as well as personal partners. And that has really for us, uh, that's at the heart of our relationship. So for us writing it together is, is, is a great treat. Uh, now, each project could be different. You know, one project you trade off chapters, uh, one, another project you trade off you know, the drafts and, 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 you know, one writes, the other writes through or what have you. It kind of depends on the kind of book you're writing. We're about to start another book uh, in which I think the, the division of labor is Susan does all the work and I will be happy to sit and eat bonbons while she does it. I don't think but it will allow you that. <laughs> but it really kind of depends on the type of, of, of project. We have our offices sit right next to each other. We're back and forth all day, every day, especially during the COVID obviously has been a great, you know, one of the benefits of this terrible time is that we get to work even more closely together than usual. Wonderful. Um, we're, we've got about 15 minutes left and I'd like to again call to the folks at Global Minnesota to send your questions in. Um, I'm curious about um, the kind of uh, team you think uh, Biden will bring in uh, in the in the foreign policy realm, are there any people that you see likely to be tapped in that regard? Um, and what do you see? Uh, how do you think uh, Joe Biden and, and that team will go about prioritizing America's place in the world? Well, it's a good question. Obviously, I, I must admit, like up until two days ago, I would have said I refuse to answer this question. <laughs> I, you know, generally believing that you cannot, you know, read a lot of stories about the future cabinet before the election takes place, especially because then the politics happen and the politics look a little bit different of what that cabinet is going to be like now than they did a week ago. But that being said, look, Joe Biden is super experienced on the foreign policy side in particular. He was not only vice president for eight years under Obama, but mm -hmm. chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee before that uh, and has a deep uh, uh, bench of talent who worked very closely with him uh, in all of those roles, uh, as well as a deep, you know, Rolodex and, and actual relationships with world leaders. So, uh, you know, I think he and expect he'll be quite hands on when it comes to foreign policy and national security. Um, 
you know, a lot of the people, uh, you know, are people we've known forever. Uh, you know, Tony Blinken, who was his closest advisor um, uh, on this, uh, both during the Obama administration and then on the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee, you know, started working uh, on the National Security Council during the Clinton uh, era. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's going to play a key role, I'm sure, uh, whether it's national security advisor or something else, uh, you know, remains to be seen. Susan Rice obviously was even, you know, reportedly a finalist for vice president. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting whether they pursue uh, appointing her as secretary of state, uh, given the new reality of uh, a very intransigent Senate. Uh, and, you know, she was perceived as not confirmable in that position uh, in the Obama Era, which is why uh, John Kerry ended up as Secretary of State, because uh, Susan Rice in the post-Benghazi po political environment was seen as not confirmable. I don't know whether Biden will just go ahead and, and try it anyways, uh, but she could have a key role. Samantha Power, who was the UN ambassador, could have a key role. Uh, you know, Michelle Flournoy, I think, seems to be the odds-on favorite to be the defense secretary after mm -hmm. having played an important role as the head of policy uh, uh, at the Pentagon in the, the beginning of the Obama administration. So, you know, this is a, an incredibly deep bench of people who have real experience. And of course, then you have some of the younger people from the Obama administration who might be ready to take more senior roles. Uh, their problem is not going to be uh, uh, lack of good people or lack of, uh, you know, willingness to serve. It's going to be the fact that there's a world on fire. Um, Biden has said he'll rejoin the Paris uh, Accord on day one. He'll rejoin the World Health Organization on day one. I think that the uh, challenge of making and distributing a coronavirus vaccine, if, you know, knock wood, that is in case uh, actually what we're dealing with in January will be maybe an early way for him to sort of put some points back on the board for the U.S. globally uh, and show that we are interested in playing a, a leadership role after four years when it wasn't clear that that was the case. But obviously, uh, you know, Europe, look at uh, Chancellor Merkel's statement today. Uh, people are very happy uh, and, uh, you know, welcoming America back to the world and things like that. Many countries. You know, um, I have questions piling up, so I want to get to them, but I just do want to do a little counterfactual and who can, you know, whatever the next four years would have been under a second Donald Trump administration, actually looking beyond that, imagine that the Republicans win four years hence. And at that point, because you mentioned about the deep Democratic bench, you wonder what bench there is on the Republican side and to do things like special envoys to hot zones and stuff like that, really, they've eviscerated the foreign policy establishment on the right. And you have to go so far back. These are going to be old men and women, if that were to be the case. Well, I think that's right. In a lot of ways, it's like the post-Watergate era when you sort of wiped out a whole generation of people. In this case, you wiped out a whole generation of people because they either are going to be associated with Trump and therefore won't be seen as uh, you know viable from the new Republican Party, or maybe the new Republican Party turns out to be the same as the Trump Republican Party, and they continue to, to, to block out traditional Republicans. You saw in President Trump a president who wanted to, who cared more about whether or not somebody had signed a letter 
against him in the primaries in 2016 than whether they were the best person for the job. And so time and again, he was left in, this, in the foreign policy and national security arena looking for people who didn't have the kind of experience that the most senior members of the Republican Party did, looking for people who did not have the, the stature or the gravitas of the senior Republicans. And so he deprived himself of that kind of talent. Now, it may have saved a lot of people a lot of hassle because as we saw today with the firing of the defense secretary, you work for President Trump at your own peril. You know, you, you're not, you're not going to leave that experience feeling happy, most likely. So I think that whatever happens in four years, whoever is the next Republican president, whenever that might be, uh, it will be a reconstituting of the national security and foreign policy worlds that they have to tap into. Indeed. Here's a question, a good one for journalists. Uh, Baker understood power and how to leverage relationships. Do you think he would have been as effective if starting out now and having to deal with social media and the increased transparency that brings? For the master of media relationships, I'm wondering if Twitter would uh, just be another tool that he'd master or if he would be tripped up by the populist effect of social media. <laughs> well, and that is actually a great question. I mean, look, you know, that's why the book is, as you said, it's not just the man who ran Washington, it's, you know, dot, 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 when Washington ran the world. This is a portrait of a man and a moment, uh, both of which uh, uh, are definitively, you know, not the present. And uh, Baker obviously, was, you know, is not a populist in any bone in his body. Uh, you know, he uh, is the fourth James Addison Baker, uh, he is a huge believer uh, in, in institutions and stability. Uh, and, uh, you know, he benefited from a media environment uh, that was still controllable in some ways. Uh, you know, this was the era of uh, the three uh, national TV networks and Time and Newsweek and the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And that was a, a universe that he could control in some ways. Uh, certainly, he could uh, have what he still refers to as message discipline. Uh, you know, and in fact, he used that term with us the other day when we were talking with him uh, about, uh, you know, these, these post-election challenges. And he, he used that phrase. And it's, you know, it's a very quaint phrase that nobody would use in today's politics. Jim Baker, by the way, uh, doesn't even use email. Uh, so never mind Twitter. Uh, this guy doesn't even use email. And yet, I will say this, I will say this, uh, you know, he's, he's in effect congenitally wired to succeed. And arguably, in some ways, his family background uh, hampered him as much as it helped him uh, in politics, right? You know, it was an obstacle in some ways, too. And, you know, I do think that uh, he's remarkably good at uh, uh, getting information, given that this is not a man who, you know, seems betrays any ability to, to use the internet. Uh, he loves to gossip. He's, he's, he's open-minded and curious in the way that, you know, a lot of truly successful people are, you know, he's not insecure uh, and he's a great reader of people. So I, I, I suspect he probably would have figured it out. I thought he might've been a little insecure at times with George Bush. Well, that might be an exception. Sure. I think that's fair to say, uh, you know, he's, he's also insecure about his reputation, you know, that he, he, he was so concerned to maintain an appearance of rectitude and, uh, you know, the family name weighed heavily on him. Uh, but generally speaking- But confident with you. And, I mean, and, to, and to be very open, to be, I mean, to, to, did you feel ever spun? You had a lot of hours of interviews. Well, of course we were spun. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. he, that's what he does, he spins. But you know, the truth is, um, 
we were a little wary going in because of his reputation as being, you know, a pretty masterful uh, uh, worker of the press. But we know we spent seven years with him at this point. And he opened up to us, I thought, in a way that I don't think he did with anybody else. He gave us all the time in the world we asked for. He gave us complete access to all of his archives at Princeton and at Rice University. We interviewed not just the former presidents and vice presidents and secretaries of defense and all that. We interviewed his eight children, his, his wife, obviously, his cousin, who was like a brother to him, his nanny, who at age 107 is still around. Wow. And I felt like, you know, was he presenting his story? Yes, of course he was. But he wasn't, I didn't feel like he was, in fact, trying to uh, manipulate it at that point. I feel like it, in, the, in the 80s, which is when we were, his 80s, when we were getting to know him in this way, he was pretty comfortable with his story. And he knew that it would come out well, warts and all, as he likes to put it. And that broadly speaking, he didn't try to put anything off balance to us. He never tried once to say we shouldn't write about something or to take issue with anything. Even now when he's read the book and there are things in there he clearly wouldn't like, he hasn't tried to take issue with us on anything, even though we quote his enemies and his, his, his adversaries. And I think that that speaks to a certain confidence level in him that he knows his story overall is a good one. Thank you. Uh, another question from the field. Did Baker ever make any principled stands that cost him anything? And will you say something about the nature of Jim Baker's personal charm? He clearly was a compelling figure. Why? You did teach me a story. Yeah, well, I, I, Peter has a good story to tell you. Just as far as his personal charm goes, no question about it. Uh, he has a natural facility, uh, uh, just a sort of a high emotional intelligence. He was able to read people across class lines or, uh, you know, geographical lines. He, you know, he had uh, been an outsider, you know, uh, uh, in Princeton. Uh, but when he was at Princeton, he was, uh, you know, going to New York high society dances that he described and writing home to his parents. And then he spent the summer working literally on an oil rig as a roustabout uh, uh, and covered in black when his mother came to see him. And he carried that into politics very successfully. He had nothing in common with Edward Shevardnadze, you know, uh, the Soviet foreign minister from Soviet Georgia. The two of them, uh, you know, bonded over, you know, vodka in the banya. He uh, would go on to Capitol Hill to negotiate and talk duck hunting with Jesse Helms and then literally go next door and talk about the opera with Chris Dodd. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had a, enough genuine ability to talk about both of those things. And we, we saw that in our own interactions. He had an ability to meet people where they're at. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. In terms of your question on the principal thing, we, I, I would tell a story like this. Back last uh, winter, I guess, when we had the impeachment trial here in Washington, President Trump, of course, was on trial for asking a foreign power basically to help him with his domestic politics, right? Well, during the day we covered the trial and at night we would come home and work on the book. And one night I was looking through some files for the book to make sure we had used all the memos that we correctly uh, fact-checking. I found this memo that we had taken from one of the archives, copied from one of the archives that we had not used in the book and I had forgotten about. And it was really interesting, it was really telling. It was a memo to the file that Jim Baker had written in the 1992 campaign. George Bush was losing to Bill Clinton at the time. And during uh, one day, four Republican congressmen show up in the Oval Office and they say to Bush and Baker, you need to go to Russia and get some dirt on Bill Clinton. Because you remember Bill Clinton at the time, had, you know, the question about him protesting against his country while overseas because of Vietnam and he'd gone to Moscow and maybe he wanted to renounce his citizenship or whatever. And Baker and Bush say, no, we don't go to Russia and ask for help 
in our domestic politics. It's just, we, don't, we don't cross that line. And he, of course, because he is good at self-preservation, he writes this down in a memo and he keeps it in a file to make clear that they had said no to this. You could argue about their ethics, but, but there were lines he just would not cross that today seem to have disappeared. Yeah, I think the only one he really may have uh, crossed in a way that, um, you know, it was, a, it was an election line. He did the Willie Horton ad with Lee Atwater and all of those, but in terms of policy, not so much. A final question, I see Mark on. If Mark, if you want to terminate this. Yeah, we promised people to be on time and we stick with it, but this conversation could go on late, late, late at night and maybe we can pick this up again. There's obviously, I think you said 600 pages, but the stories <laughs> about politics are really at the center of what a lot of our foreign policy conversation will be going forward. So we will pick this up again. But Peter and Susan, thank you. Thank you for writing this book and the way that you keep us as a nation informed. Um, the media has been uh, in the crosshairs and uh, we are very, very uh, aware of that. And we wanna keep us not just supporting media and writers, but, but saying out loud, our democracy demands the kind of coverage and the kind of intensive questions that you've asked. And Bill, thank you for moderating, but also for keeping our World Affairs Council strong, strong internationally in terms of respect overseas, strong domestically, our organizations. We've got some hills to climb and we'll have to climb them together and they'll take leadership and they'll take knowledge and action. And just like that memo that you brought out here right at the very end, there are connections between different times and different periods in our nation's history. And that's the importance of how we report history and how we repeat history, but it's also a never ending uh, process and we're going to keep it on. We've had 70 years of this for uh, Global Minnesota and we're gonna have a good next 70. And it seems like we're gonna also have a very interesting next four years. Speaking of that, two hours from now, nine o'clock tonight, Minnesota Public Radio, We'll be running a portion of our World Food Day program with both uh, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs um, and uh, Governor David Beasley, uh, who is the executive director of the World Food Program. He was our opening speaker um, just a couple of days after the food program received the Nobel Peace Prize. I think people will find how they view the world situation um, that we face now very interesting and then how they look forward. So that's tonight. It's a re play from today at noon. So catch that if you'd like. And it's also, of course, archived. And then next Wednesday night, we'll be looking at the contribution of Mexican immigrants in the Minnesota economy. It's a very big part of our economy. It's a very important topic. And six o'clock, same time at night, uh, back here on Zoom, it's part, part of our um, great conversation series and uh, look forward to welcoming all of our members and all the other uh, people who are watching tonight part of the program. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your devotions to our global affairs and to keeping our nation strong and our nation connected to the other peoples on the world. Thank you again, Peter and Bill. Good night to everyone. See you next week.